I have come here to chew bubblegum and kick ass. And I'm all out of bubblegum. There are, of course, those who do not want us to speak. Greed, deception, abuse of power, that's no plan. They, they just gatekeep knowledge. You know, they're, they're to- total masters of deception. They manipulate everything. You know, these, these pricks at the hell that lie to us. It's... I did not have sexual relations with that woman, Miss Lewinsky. I never told anybody to lie, not a single time, never. These allegations are false, and I need to go back to work for the American people. They're, they're setting it up for the Great Deception. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it all revolves around the Great Deception. Yeah, right? it, bingo. And L.A. and I talked about that. I said, L.A., is this the Great Deception? And he didn't hesitate. He said, absolutely. I never used to question before, and now I question everything. Well, we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covet means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. The world needs a wake-up call. We're going to fold it in. And welcome to the Great Deception Podcast. I'm your host, Matt. Thanks for joining me. I want to throw some thank yous out there. We've been getting some uh, contributions to the show. It's been greatly appreciated. Had a couple new patrons sign up, so I wanted to thank Paul and Nico for your support, guys. I, I greatly appreciate that. And then uh, I got some, another donation from uh, Kev, Sal, and Sean. Guys, thank you so much. Uh, that really means a lot to me that you guys would donate um, and that you know I'm still out here. I appreciate that. What wild times we're in, guys. It's wild out there. We're seeing mass shootings at an all-time high. We're seeing the government in reactionary mode to everything, it seems. And their answer always boils down to more legislation. Let's give them more, make more laws, give them more power, give them more jurisdiction over what we do, you know, micromanage more and more. When in reality, we all know that the real problem is there's too many laws. There's too much government. They have too much control. Too much influence. And they don't represent the people. And one of the things that we've seen over the last couple of shows that I've put out is this theme of the American government killing its citizens or killing the occupants of the land. And we saw it in the Wounded Knee Massacre that we talked about in the last episode in 1890, where almost 300 Sioux were slaughtered uh, when they were supposed to just be handing in their weapons. You had Tulsa in 1921, where Black Wall Street was destroyed by quote-unquote rioters, but the National Guard was brought in. I mean, they they just let it go. They let it 
be raped and pillaged and the people killed and ran out of town like they were nothing. And the government did nothing to protect them. And then we get to Philadelphia in 1985, where they actually dropped a bomb out of a helicopter. They dropped C4 out of a helicopter onto a residential building. It's insanity. Killing over a dozen people, women and children included, unnecessarily. And this is the government that we're dealing with. And this goes all the way back. This is nothing new to this regime, to this whatever you want to call it that's been created in Washington, D.C. Because since its inception, it has been on a mission to control and destroy anything that gets in its way. Now, one of the things that you'll see in this instance is that, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's the argument of violence against the natives, right? And this is one of those debates you can go back and forth. But when you look at it, the Europeans in, invaded this country, took over land of this country that was held by native peoples and claimed it to be their own. Essentially, illegitimately, they took it by force, okay, which is how you do things in this realm. But, what, you know, they, they just, you know, for the most part, when, when the Spanish came in, <laughs> it wasn't pretty, right? And they were down in New Orleans, what we called Louisiana, which was basically the Midwest, greater part, part of the Midwest out to the Rockies. And then you had, you know, the English, which were up in Canada and all along the East. And you had the French, which were down South and, and were up here as well in the Northeast. And so you had all these occupiers coming in and, you know, what they did over time essentially was push the natives <clears throat> further and further out. And, uh, you know, they did this through lies and deception broken treaties but what we saw you know to counter it was the confederacies that the natives put together and you saw the pan-tribal union where multiple tribes came come together and so you know but what what kept happening was they kept pushing these natives further and further west and as we'll see when we go into this a little bit more, you'll start to see that it was just, it was genocide. You know, if you didn't agree, you were going to be wiped out. If you put up any resistance, you were going to be wiped out. If you, if, if the settlers felt any threat from you, you were going to be dealt with. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm obviously not native, um, but you know, I do have, there, there is some native blood in my family. Um, not much, but I, I really feel for the natives in this instance, because this was their land, you know, and the Europeans came over and wanted to colonize it and they put up a resistance and, you know, so along the way, there would be this back and forth where they would make deals together. And, and, and what we see are these, you know, it's just constant deception 
on the American side for the most part. Yeah, the the natives, they listen, they weren't saints either, but they're fighting for their livelihood. They're fighting for their land. These people that came over here came over by choice to occupy a foreign land, which their government, you know, basically illegitimately claimed. So we, we can go through the, the semantics of this up, down, and sideways. But what got me into this topic here that we're going to talk about tonight is a book I was reading by Jay Feldman, and it's called When the Mississippi Ran Backwards, Empire, Intrigue, Murder, and the New Madrid Earthquakes. And up until, geez, probably about two years ago, I had never heard of this New Madrid Earthquake which is the largest earthquake or set of earthquakes on the continental U.S. back in the 1800s. And I had also never heard of Tecumseh's Comet, or you, you may have known as Napoleon's Comet, or the Great Comet of 1811. And all of these things are happening, and then right after is the War of 1812, which... You know, here in America, there was the War of 1812, but also over in Europe, there was the War of 1812. You had Napoleon battling the French and the Russians. Napoleon battling the French, battling the British and the Russians. Kind of hard to fight himself. But you have have these dynamics going on, okay? And, And so it's just a wild time. There's chaos going on in nature. There's chaos going on in with the the people of the land and it's just a very very chaotic time and you know it's a really cool story one of the things i find interesting about this though is two presidents came out of this war guilty of slaughtering hundreds if not thousands of natives and that would be william henry harrison and Andrew Jackson. Okay. And then you would have a third guy named Richard Mentor Johnson, who would go on to be uh, Martin Van Buren's vice president, who was also a big player in this. Um, So we, as we get into this, what we're going to start with, we're going to start with uh, uh, the treaty of Greenville. Okay. But as we go through this, what we're going to look at is Not only are we going to look at the treaties, we're going to start looking at the natives, the Creek Confederacy. We're going to look at the relationship and the battles between Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison. We're going to look at Napoleon's Comet, Tecumseh's Comet, same comet, which was visible in the air for 260 days. Longest ever known on record until... um, the Haley Bob comment in 1997. So, but we'll get into the details of all this. But what we see is okay, you see all the different tribes. And if you want, go look at a map and, and look at where a lot of the tribes originate from and, and how their land was laid out. And then you'll start to see how they were gradually pushed further and further west to a point where they were basically, you know put on these reservations and uh and and confined and you'll find monuments of you know native massacres all over 
massacre of natives, I'm saying, not massacre by natives. They were guilty of that as well. But what you'll see is, you know, the Indian territory just slowly dwindles over time. Okay, you'll notice the whole East Coast is basically taken over up and up to Florida before 1750. And then it starts creeping west. You know, you go from northern Maine, uh, southern Canada, up in Vermont and New York, down through the Appalachian, Appalachians. And, uh, and you'll see it just started, it creeps. And then by 1810, you know, a good portion of the East Coast, the, the, the main holdouts by 1810 of the populated land uh, east of the Louisiana Purchase are basically the Ohio Valley region, okay, up near Michigan, Wisconsin, Ohio, that area, and then down in part of Georgia, Alabama, and Florida, okay, which was Creek Territory. And so as you look at this, you just see they, they just keep going further and further west. So that gets us to the Treaty of Greenville. So one of the things you have to understand is that between 1774 and 1794, Indian villages in New York, Pennsylvania, Indiana, and Ohio, they were constantly being attacked by the American army and militias trying to drive them out. So what happens? The Shawnee, the Delaware, the Iroquois, the, the Miami, the Odawa, the Wyandotte, and the Mingo, they saw all this violence happening against their villages. So they, there was over 100 villages burned and destroyed and unknown amount of casualties. Like they, they just couldn't count. The most notorious frontier massacres occurred March 8th, 1782 on the upper Sandusky River in Ohio at the village known as Nanenhuten. And that was that um, obelisk I showed before was the memorial. Over 90 Delaware Indians, the majority women and children, were returning to the village to gather food supplies. These Delaware, known as the uh, Moravian Town Indians, were Christian and pacifists. Upon reaching their village, the Delaware were rounded up by Colonel David Williamson and the Pennsylvania militia. Two outbuildings served as slaughterhouses where the Indians were led two at a time to their execution. So that gets us to the Treaty of Greenville in 1795, which was between um, the United States government and uh, the indigenous you know, nations of the Northwest Territory, which is the Midwest now. You have to understand that West of the Rockies really wasn't on their radar yet in 1795. So in January of 1795, the representatives from the various tribes began meeting with uh, General Anthony Wayne at Greenville. Uh, the Anglo-American settlers and the American Indians spent the next eight months negotiating a treaty that became known as the Treaty of Greenville. So on August 3rd, 1795, the leaders of those tribes I, I mentioned before formally signed the treaty. The American Indians who became signatories agreed to relinquish all land claims to land south and east of the boundary that began roughly at the mouth of the Cuyahoga River. It ran southwards to Fort Lawrence and then turned west to Fort Laramie and Fort Recovery. It turned southward to the Ohio River. The Indians, however, could still hunt on the land that they uh, ceded. 
the whites agreed to relinquish their claims to the land north and west of the line, although American Indians were permitted to establish uh, trading posts in their territory. The United States also provided the Indians with $20,000 worth of goods for signing the treaty. A nice little bribe never hurts, right? They also agreed to give um, Ohio's American Indian signatories $9,500 every year in goods. The American Indians were to decide how the goods would be divided amongst them. So again, what they're doing, and, and what you'll see here is, is the line that they drew in Greenville. You know, it's not too far from Lake Erie up here, and then it cuts down. So in, in Ohio area. But what we're what we see is there were other Indian groups, native groups that refused to sign the agreement. And what happened was the white settlers continued to move on to native land or what was supposed to be native land. Violence continued between these between the whites and the natives. The American Indian leaders like Tecumseh and his brother, the prophet, would emerge in the early 1800s to carry on the American Indian struggle to regain their lost land. And this is a battle that you'll see. Okay, so we're talking 1795 now, War of 1812, those 17 years, there's constant skirmishes, treaties being broken, all sorts of stuff. Uh, it said, though it ended the Northwest Indian War, the treaty failed to prevent further conflict between the native Indians and the settlers, just like I said. Okay, so what happens? So it, all this time, you know, and prior to this, there were confederacies, right? Groups of, of, of tribes. So the Creek Confederacy was a loose coalition of ethnically and linguistically diverse Native American towns that slowly came together as a political force in the 18th and early 19th centuries. It was basically in like Georgia, Alabama, and, and Northern Florida regions. Um, and for the most part, these towns operated, they were, they were autonomous. They worked together, but they functioned autonomously on their own. Several of the Creek leaders tried to consolidate power and create more centralized system, but these attempts at nation building largely failed, right? They wanted to try to create a state, uh, a Creek state, but it just, they couldn't get the push they really needed. So instead, what they ended up with was a fragile and informal confederacy connected the towns together, you know, for different cultural rituals, you know, as well as for purposes of, of diplomacy and trade. Uh, disputes were central, uh, were always happening over who had the power and where should it be centralized at. And then there were other issues that they battled constantly, which ultimately led to the Creek War of 1813 and 1814, where the Creeks basically split into the Red Sticks and the White Sticks. And we'll get into that later. And that's a crazy story in itself. And then in the 1830s, the U.S. forced most of the members of the Creek Confederacy to vacate uh, their eastern lands and relocate to the, uh, the Indian Territory, which, as I showed previously in the map, and if you're, not, if you're just listening, there is also going to be a YouTube video you can go check out with some maps and things like that where you can pause and check out different points and 
So this is one where you, you look, the Creek today, their descendants are known as the Muscogee uh, Nation. Those that remained in the East include members of the federally recognized Seminole Tribe of Florida and the Porch Band of Creek Indians who still live in Alabama. So that's where you get the Confederacy. Again, it didn't work out as they planned. They were trying to create essentially a nation state, and it just didn't work out. So what we have is the Mississippi River is critical to moving supplies and and logistics throughout what's existing of America at this time. It can get you from all the way up in Ohio and all, or not Ohio, uh, out east or Westmore, but it'll take you from the northern point of the United States to the southern point of the United States. And so the Spanish basically controlled the Mississippi at this time. And what were popping up were these small towns along the Mississippi because that was a good way to try and get your hold on the river. So what this guy named George Morgan came up with this idea to create um, what was considered, he, he wanted to create this utopian society he called New, New Madrid, or New Madrid, I should say, not New Madrid, New Madrid. And what that was, was he was going to do this, and he was also going to gain control of the river. He was going to try to control the lower portion of the Mississippi and, and things that came in and out of it. But at this time, what you have to understand is then there were constant native attacks in this area. It was not safe at all. Um, and in addition to that, there were river pirates. So, I mean, you had all of these, just this violence in this area. And there was, wasn't really anything they could counter with other than their own militias. So Morgan worked with some native tribes. He gathered the Delaware and other native tribes to go with him to meet the Spanish commandant in St. Louis. So now New Madrid, or New Madrid, sorry, I'm going to keep tripping over that myself, was first settled by French fur traders in like 1783. So it's not an old, old area from a settlement standpoint, at least from a European settlement standpoint. But Morgan came up with this idea to create these 320 acre plots that he would sell for 48 Mexican dollars per plot. And well, the, the Spanish didn't like that idea. And so what they said is, listen, we're not going to we're not buying this. What you can do is you can distribute the land for free. And the only public worship that's allowed on that land is Roman Catholic, which was supported by the Spanish. Although, you know, in private, the immigrants were free to worship, you know, whatever it was they chose. But they would also have to pledge loyalty to Spain. And what they would be, they would be granted the land, they would be granted commercial privileges, and they would be granted what we just mentioned, the freedom of religion. So around 1791, there's, there's, you know, 200 or so folks there. It's not really thriving. Uh, it's mainly French that have come down from the Illinois territory. 
And then by 1797, it's only up to like 600 people, including slaves. So again, relatively small population. The problem was with the area that he picked is that it was a poorly draining plain. And what happens in poorly draining plains? What you start to see is disease, fevers, and that was rampant. And the other problem was, was that he was seeing that every year yards of the bank were getting swallowed up by the river. So the land was shrinking a little bit each and every year. So, and one, oh, here, I wanted to show you this, Scott, anyone that's watching this, it, an interesting find is you look on this old map of the Mississippi River and you see New Madrid here. And this kind of looks like a star fort. I mean, it may just be me looking for something cool like that, but no, I mean, this building, this structure here, it's, um, you know, it has the makings of a star fort, much like when we looked at Chicago, there was that little fort on the river there. Uh, and, you know, they did put up these forts, so it may just be a little wooden fort, but it does kind of have the resemblance of a star fort. So what happens after the turn of the century, you know, 1800s, the population just drops. I mean, with the disease and the land, the way it is, people are not, don't want any part of this place. Now, Louisiana Purchase, though, that opened up the Mississippi River uh, because now the U.S. owned both sides of it. It wasn't Spanish owned anymore. And what happened in New Madrid? It, it had no strategic value anymore, right? It was pointless. It, it, the whole, you could travel up and down the Mississippi with no issue. So it, it lost basically all of its significance. So in 1810, if you, there's a map that shows two entire rows of streets that are no longer part of the town that got swallowed up by the river. 1811, Henry Breckenridge observed at least 300 yards have disappeared from New Madrid. Three forts and a large, a number of large and spacious streets have been taken away within the last 15 years. This town is being engulfed by the mighty Mississippi. So, and, and it, I found it funny because what they said is after the Louisiana Purchase, they said that the land uh, became... Uh, the population changed to dregs of Kentucky, France, and Spain, and subsist by hunting and trading with natives who exchange with them rich furs for whiskey, blankets, ammunition, and arms. So what you're seeing is these people that are trading with the natives, that's being frowned upon. So they're the dregs of society. But there's two types of people that are settling in New Madrid. New Madrid. You had the French and the Anglo-Americans. So the French were these easygoing, you know, like social people who wanted to put settlements all close together. They preferred hunting and trapping and, and trading with the natives for sustenance. They liked the barter economy. Um, they used pelts as their currency. And they were known, as the French are, for their culinary talents. The French served various menus, that included salads, vegetables, and soups, as well as breads and meats. So they ate well. Don't get yourself wrong there. The French know how to cook. Now, on the other side, though, you had the Anglo-Americans, who were the farmers 
who were basically their mission was to just conquer the back country, get as much land as they could get their hands on. And they were very entrepreneurial, you know, enterprising, some would say. And they didn't give a crap. They'd do whatever they had to do to get it done. And they wanted to live remotely um, on their on their homesteads. They didn't want to be in these clustered cities that the French were proposing. So what they do, they spun their own cloth and their diet was basically meat and cornbread. But the problem with this area is you have these two different people, which isn't an issue. The issue is three miles below the earth's surface, there's a massive rift valley that's 100 miles wide and 350 miles long. And it's about to shake. And this little river town is about to feel the brunt of it. But before we get there, we have to kind of understand the backstory to the earthquake, the comet that we're going to see coming here in the near future and why New Madrid is even of any relevance because it was near the epicenter of this massive earthquake, which was the biggest, the largest on the continental U.S. to date. So what, what they did is after the Treaty of Greenville, Tecumseh wanted to take his people and what his brother was known as the prophet had gathered quite a following. So what they wanted to do, they wanted to take their their people out of the reach of the U.S. government. So they created Prophetstown. And basically what they were saying was to the government, hey, listen, you leave us alone. We're going to live here. We're going to live peacefully. But if you inflict on us, we are going to fight back. We're not just going to roll over. We are going to defend our lands to the death. And, well, that didn't go over well. As you know, with the American government, they just want you to roll over. And at this time, you know, we're talking like 1808 to 1810 time frame. The settlers, they wanted more and more land. And they wanted more and more buffer from the natives. And they wanted, you know, some more and more natives to be removed, to be pushed west or taken care of. And it was just a bloodbath on both sides. There were massacres on both sides, settlers being massacred, natives' villages being massacred. And the tension was just constant, and it was growing. And it had to come to a point. It had to come to a peak, a pinnacle. And basically, that's what the War of 1812 was. The eighteen twelve War of 1812 was not so much the United States against the British. Yeah, the British tried to help them. It was the United States against the natives. They were trying to push the natives out and and set up their territory. So what do we have? We have what's called the Treaty of Fort Wayne, or sometimes called the 10 o'clock line treaty, or the 12 mile line treaty, which in 1809 the treaty obtained 30 million acres of land from the natives in Illinois and Indiana and gave it to the government. 
the negotiations of this, they were prim, uh, primarily involved the Delaware tribe, but included other tribes as well. However, the negotiations excluded the Shawnee, which is they were inhabitants of the area also and had been asked to leave by the Miami war chief, Little Turtle. Now, the Shawnee are led by Tecumseh, who is a well-known native warrior. He's, he, you know, he's one of these guys, if you, you know, and I think we're going to look at, yeah, we're going to look at um, just his, his stature. You know, he's one of those guys you walked in the room and, he commanded attention. He didn't demand it. Well, he did too, but he, he commanded it. It's just, your eyes were drawn to him. He had this charismatic personality about him. So who is negotiating these treaties? None other than the Indiana governor or the territorial governor, I should say, William Henry Harrison would go on to be the president. Now, an interesting fact about him, his, his family if any of you are familiar with the History Channel show Pawn Stars, they are descendants of William Henry Harrison. Interesting little fact. So Tecumseh did not like this agreement. He didn't, he said it was invalid. They didn't have the right to give this land over to the Americans. So he said it was invalid. So he worked tirelessly and relentlessly to go around to rally up tribes to put together a force that could stand up and take this land back but the problem is is that you know harrison is a scumbag this guy is just a dirtbag and what he did is he would just use every trick in the book whether it was bribery you know just trickery lies deceit threats and he loved to give whiskey and he got them he got the natives to sign seven treaties with various tribes giving you know the u.s a lot of what's today um indiana missouri wisconsin and illinois and what did the natives get they got two cents an acre as compensation so we fast forward to the treaty of uh fort wayne or the fort wayne treaty of 1809 harrison himself assured the signers the natives this is the first request of your father, President Madison. And this is interesting, guys, because they always, the you'll notice when the natives, when Tecumseh addresses Harrison, he always refers to him as brother, as kind of a sign of respect. Well, when Harrison addresses the natives, it's always father says. So he's always talking down to them, like they're children, like there's someone to be talked down to. And I, I found that interesting in itself. So he says, Father, your father, President Madison, has ever made it, and it will be the last. He wants no more of your land. Agree to the pro, uh, proposition, which I now make, and he will never make another proposition to sell your lands. And in true Harrison fashion, within 18 months, this would be broken because the government just has this insatiable thirst for more and more land, more and more control, more and more resources. So what does Harrison do? He writes to the prophet, who again is Tecumseh's brother. And he says, what reason have you to complain of the 17 fires? And he calls the 17 fires the United States, is what he means. Uh, what, 
what reason have you to complain of the 17 fires have taken anything from you? Have they ever violated treaties made with the red men? You say they purchased land from those who have no right to sell. Show the truth of this and the lands will instantly be restored. Well, that's interesting. So Tecumseh responded and he says to him, he says, the great spirit, he gave this great land, the, this great island to his red children. He placed the whites on the other side of the big water. They were not contented with their own, but came to ours, came to take ours from us. They have driven us from the sea to the lakes. We can go no further. So in August of 1810, you have the council that was held in Indian territory. And that brought together, you know, not only territorial officials, but also dozens of chiefs from the Northwest Territory. So, and, and who did it include? None other than Tecumseh and William Henry Harrison. So this was kind of their first face-to-face meeting. And so I want to take a look at the book and I want to read to you. So here's what, <coughs> excuse me, what Harrison sent to the residents of Prophetstown. He said, my children, my eyes are open and I'm now looking toward the Wabash. I see a dark cloud hanging over it. Those who have raised it intended for my own destruction, but I will turn it upon their own heads. My children, be wise and listen to my voice. I fear that you have got on a road that will lead you to destruction. It is not too late to turn back. Have pity uh, on your women and children. It is time that my friends should be known. I shall draw a line. Those that keep me by the hand must keep on one side of it and those that adhere to the prophet on the other. So they respond to Harrison and they say, Father, kind of in jest, your speech has not scared us. We are not afraid of what you say. We have our eyes on our lands, on the Wabash, and strong determination to defend our rights. Let them be invaded from what quarter they may, that when our best interest is invaded, we will defend them to a man. And so Harrison is furious, okay? Furious at this. So what does he do? He's going to march on... uh, Okay, so he says, brother, I wish to I wish you listen to me. Well, as I do not think you clearly understand what I said to you before, I shall explain it again. After this conduct, so he he's talking, um, Tecumseh's talking about Harrison. After this conduct, can you blame me for placing a little confidence in the promises of our fathers, the Americans? How can we have confidence in the white people? When Jesus Christ came upon the earth, you killed and nailed him on a cross. So he says, brother, since the peace was made, you have killed some of the Shawnees, Winnebago's, Delaware's, and Miami's, and you've taken our lands from us. And I do not see how we can remain at peace with you if you continue to do so. So you, you just keep seeing this back and forth. So Tecumseh even goes as far as to call Harrison a liar, which enrages Harrison. But if you want to understand the type of man Tecumseh was, it says Tecumseh's character more than his looks set him apart. This great chief was a man of wonderful intellect, brave, fearless, and of pure integrity. 
he would do nothing but what was right and would submit to do nothing that was wrong. So it seems like he's really respectful. So now Harrison says, the implicit obedience and respect which the followers of Tecumseh pay him is really astonishing and more than any other circumstance bespeaks him one of the uncommon geniuses which spring up occasionally to produce revolutions and overturn the established order of things. If it were not for the vicinity of the United States, he would perhaps be the founder of an empire that would rival the glory of that of Mexico or Peru. So what he's saying is he's saying that, you know, Tecumseh is a great leader. He respects him, but he can't stand him because he knows that Tecumseh is his match, right? You know, you you always say, you know, you've met your match. Well, that's his match. So after the meeting, Tecumseh met with British officials at Fort Malden, which is up near Detroit, because he was trying to get aid for the because he knew war was coming. Right. Harrison was going to attack. They were going to have to defend themselves. So he, he he needed at least some ammunition and supplies. So he was able to get some supplies and provisions from the British Indian agent, Matthew Elliott, who is a really stand up guy. Uh, when you look back at who Matthew Elliott is in the spring, multiple attacks on white settlements and surveyors of Harrison caused Harrison to ask Washington for reinforcements and permission to attack Prophetstown. So see, this is what happens. You know, there was one surveyor that got sent out and he got roughed up and Harrison was not happy about it. So in May, a native chief said the time is drawing near when the murder is to begin. And all the Indians that will not join are to die with the whites. So the Indian, the natives know this is coming. And it's like, either you're with us or you're against us. Because you have to remember, there's natives on the American side, right? Those that signed that treaty were siding with the Americans for the most part. Now you had on the other side, you had the natives who didn't agree. You had the Shawnee and some of the Creek and other, other tribes, Seminoles and such that were either backed by the Spanish or the British or the French against the uh, Americans. So it's a really interesting dynamic at the time. So he it's Harrison wrote to Tecumseh. He goes, do you really think that a handful of men that you have about you are able to contend with the 17 fires again, the United States, or even that the whole of the tribes united could contend against the Kentucky fire. Anyone brothers, it is not our wish to hurt you, but if we certainly did, we have the power to do it is what Tecumseh replies. So he offers Tecumseh and the prophet, his brother to meet, with president madison and tecumseh he sat on it for a minute he's like man if i can meet with the president i might be able to get this resolved but then he realized man the the trip out to washington was going to take six to eight weeks and he's like it's just another white man right he goes what's going to come out of meeting with the president is he really going to stand by his word because they had no faith in their word at this time it was pointless So what he decided is he needs to go and keep rallying troops. He needs to get more uh, of the Southern tribes so they can go against the government. 
Now, what's interesting in on July 27th, 1811, there's this meeting at Vincennes and Harrison is there with 80 of his guys and 800 militiamen and Tecumseh arrives with how many warriors do you think? 300, which, you know, I, I question sometimes the validity of these numbers because I do feel like sometimes they, there's a loose to them or, you know, they're just put on paper as a random number. But if you think about the number 300 and the movie 300 and battle of Thermopylae and all that, I just thought it was interesting that he brought 300 warriors with him. So what do you think comes of the meeting? Nothing. And Tecumseh just leaves uh, to rally the Southern tribes. So what is Harrison just wants, he's on a mission to destroy Prophetstown. And uh, he says, there can be no doubt But his object is to excite the Southern Indians against us. I do not think there is any danger of any hostility until he returns. And his absence affords the most favorable opportunity for breaking up his Confederacy. I hope before his return that that part of the Fabry, which he considered complete, will be demolished and even its foundations rooted up. So he's ready to raise Prophetstown. I consider peace totally out of the question, Harrison says. We need not to expect it till the prophet's party is dispersed. And there seems to be no treasonable grounds to hope for a change for the better. Whilst he is permitted to increase his strength and impunity. So that's when Harrison sends that message to Prophetstown, basically saying, you know, my children, this is it. Here's your chance. So what is he doing? September of 1811, Harrison sends a thousand men from Vincennes towards Prophetstown. So on October 10th, a month later, one of Harrison's sentries was shot in the leg by a party of Shawnee from Prophetstown. What does that do? That gives Harrison what he needs to be able to retaliate, right? Because now he's been attacked. So Harrison offered three conditions to Prophetstown to avoid any further. He he says, listen, if you agree to these three conditions, this will be the end of it. Now, what's his track record like? Yeah, it sucks. He's just full of shit, constantly lying, lying, lying. So we'll, we'll read the three and see where it goes. So point one, evict all Potawatomi's. Kickapoos and Winnebago's from Prophetstown. Turn over all Indians who had committed acts against the U.S. and against its citizens, and return all horses stolen from white settlers. So, needless to say, their offer was met with some unkind remarks. Uh, obviously, the natives don't agree to this. What happens? Harrison thinks, okay, he's about a mile outside of town. He's like, we can we can sneak attack them at dawn. So he's making prep for a dawn attack to sneak attack the natives. Well, guess what? The natives strike first. So fighting ensued for like two hours. Harrison lost 60 men of the thousand and 120 wounded. The natives lost about 50 and 75 injured. So it was basically equal casualties, kind of a draw, you would say. The natives abandoned the town and Harrison's troops set fire to the lodges and over 5,000 bushels of corn and beans. Kyle, you hear that from Big Dom? 5,000 bushels of corn and beans. 
What a tragedy. So it'll be labeled as the Battle of Tippecanoe. But in all honesty, it wasn't a great victory for Harrison. They lost more men than the natives did. And the natives had a smaller force. But he would use this in his slogan to become president. Tippecanoe and Tyler too, right? I'm sure some of you have heard that before. Now, the problem was Tecumseh could not get the support from the Creek chief, Big Warrior. And that was a major, major problem because he needed the Creek. The Creek were the Southern staple. If he could get them, they would be ready to go. And this is where Tecumseh, um, his what's deemed the earthquake prediction. He tells Big Warrior, listen, I'm going to Detroit. If you guys aren't with me, I'm going to make the ground shake. What happens? So let's move forward to 1811. We're inching closer and closer. This is where things start to get really crazy in 1811. Reverend John Kerrigan said, whether these things are ominous or not, one thing is certain. This is a time of extraordinaire. It's filled with natural disasters, natural phenomena, you know, all sorts of stuff. So let's go through starting in January. January 13th, you had an earthquake in Columbia, South Carolina and Augusta, Georgia. In the summer of 1811, the Ohio and Mississippi Valleys had massive flooding and widespread illness. Again, this is one year, okay? Summer of 1811, the heat was intense. Many crops were destroyed by drought. The fall is full of hurricanes and tornadoes that hit the eastern U.S. from Georgia to Maine. September 10th, you have a devastating tornado in Charleston, South Carolina, killing more than a dozen and damaged many structures. In October, you have a tornado in Nashville, Tennessee. Now, let's jump back to September. September of 1811 is when Tecumseh's Comet, okay, is the brightest. Now, what is Tecumseh's Comet? We'll get to that in a minute. But when did it? It started in March, guys. So it had been going for almost six months at this point. Every day you could see this comet. It was up in the sky. Then what happened? September 17th, there's a solar eclipse. So you have this comet that's going around, you have this solar eclipse, and even the animals were acting bizarre. Their behavior was just erratic. It was the the electricity or whatever was going on in the environment at the time was just at a peak. So December 1811, William Lee Pierce says, one half hour before sunrise, Two vast electrical columns shot up from the eastern horizon until their heads reached a zenith. He said, from until December 16th, uh, he said, from then, so December till December 16th, there was a continued want of perfect transparency in the atmosphere. And whenever the sun was even partially visible, it exhibited a dull and fiery redness. Now that's, let's go through that again. 
there was a continued want of perfect transparency in the atmosphere. So it's saying the sky was clear. And whenever the sun was even partially visible, it exhibited a dull and fiery redness, almost like the sun was burning out, a red sun. So let's get to the great comet of 1811. It was the brightest comet with the longest duration of brightness on record, which was 260 days until, like I said before, the, uh, the Hale-Bopp comet, which was 1997. So the great comet of uh, Tecumseh's comet of 1811 was first spotted in March, like we said, and it increased in intensity until December of 1811. So you're seeing this every night. It's up in the sky. Some recordings show that it had a tail that was 25 degrees long and a head that was 50% larger than the sun. Jay Feldman says, with a head 15, mile, 15 million miles wide and 100 million miles long, its intensity uh, was brightest on October 1811. And it began to fade or dissipate thereafter until April of 1812. In December... The comet appeared to some observers to fade and to others, it appeared to perform frightening acrobatics and split into two. Now, what's interesting is, is they don't know what caused the comet, where it came from, where it ever went to. It was just up there. And now think about the electricity that that must have been generating in the atmosphere. Right. Having this thing just hovering overhead. for three quarters of a year it had to be doing things to the balance to the, the electromagnetic field to the frequency of the earth i mean this thing is just massive when you look at it i mean if you have any obviously there's no pictures but there's you know drawings of it um so after that we get to the black sun Okay, which now, now, well, let's go back. Let's go back to Napoleon's Comet. Okay, it was called Napoleon's Comet because of the Napoleonic Wars were going on at the time. And, uh, and obviously, we're right on the doorstep of the War of 1812. And you had the U U.S. was allied with France, Germany, and Austria against Britain, Spain, Portugal, and Russia. In the U.S. Midwest, the comet was visible for over a year and during the New Madrid earthquakes of 1811, which we'll get to right here. The Shawnee leader Tecumseh, who was born, which is funny, he's born in the year of the comet of 1769 and was named accordingly because his name meant shooting star or he who walks across the sky. So it's, it's just, it's very interesting. So his brother had predicted a solar eclipse in 1806. Um, but, you know, he also had contacts in Europe that were astrologers or sky watchers that they called them at the time. So he was getting this information from them. There was astronomers, astrologers, whatever it may be. Okay, so Harrison, supposedly, this is a myth. Now, I haven't proven it, but this is goes along with the story. So supposedly Harrison, he was the governor of Indiana at the time. Um, he was afraid of the prophet was becoming way too popular and he challenged him to produce a miracle. So the prophet announced that a solar eclipse would happen. And it did in September of 1811. And, but he knew it was going to happen. However, 
that was assigned to the natives. A black sun to the natives was an indication that war was impending, that it was a prediction of war. And the war was launched by Governor Harrison in November. So it was essentially right. Wars with the natives and the British would rage until 1813. After the day of the Black Sun, Tecumseh and his brother attracted even more followers. Okay, so they start getting this following. So on November 6, 1811, Governor Harrison attacked Prophetstown with over a thousand men. And this was the beginning of Tecumseh's war. Tecumseh was at the Shawnee and Delaware Indian villages near Cape Girardeau, 50 miles north of the epicenter of New Madrid, when the earthquake first struck on December 16th, 1811. So what we see here, okay, you see the, the comment. Then you see at the meeting of the Creek Confederacy where he tells Big Warrior, listen, if you do not come with me, I will make the ground shake by the time I get to Detroit. And what happens? December 1811, the ground starts to shake. And it continues to shake for the better part of the next three to four months. And we're talking some massive shaking. So on December 16th, the first of three extraordinary earthquakes measuring near or at 8.0. Now they, they estimate this because the Richter scale obviously wasn't around in 1811. They hit the Midwestern and Southern United States. These quakes were so intense, they shook church bells in New England and Charleston, South Carolina. And it was felt as far away as Mexico, Florida, or Mexico, Canada, and the Rocky Mountains. And it affected 1.5 million miles of land. I mean, these, these quakes are just massive. And for a time, it caused parts of the Mississippi to change directions. Now think about that. Think about how powerful an earthquake must be to get the mighty Mississippi to change direction for three days. Whew. So during the winter, they recorded 1,874 tremors within the New Madrid Fault. Okay. There was a strong smell of sulfur. So back then, to them, that was going to mean what? The devil, right? That that scent, that smell of sulfur always had some evil, satanic or devilish connotation to it. So it says, the ground was rolling in waves of a few feet in height with a visible depression in between. By and by, those swells burst up, throwing large volumes of water and a species of charcoal. Right, so land was spitting up water, charcoal, and that's not it. So we're going to go to the book here, When the Mississippi Ran Backwards. And he goes, James Fletcher watched as a granary and a smokehouse sank into a fissure and disappeared after which the gap in the ground closed up, permanently burying the buildings. Think about that, guys. The buildings were swallowed by the land. They disappeared. 
Everywhere, the earth was opening and various substances were thrown high up into the air. In some places, sand and other materials were forced up through large circular holes. Water came rising to the surface and was sometimes sent spouting up in geyser-like streams. Fletcher noted that the earth was in a course of 15 minutes after the shock in the morning, nearly entirely inundated with water. A deluge. So Michael Brom observed the bed of the Mississippi River suddenly rise up like a great loaf of bread to the height of many feet, uh, the uprising being accompanied by a terrible rumbling noise. At its height, the loaf burst as great quantities of sand, water, and black sulfurous vapor were sent shooting upward. I mean, think about that, guys. That's crazy. Just stuff shooting all over the place. So then you have uh, Captain George Riddle. And he, he, his unbelieving eyes as the bank caved in 30 yards back from the water. So 30 yards in, the bank just gets sucked in. As far up and down the river as he could see, acres upon acres of land went plunging into the current. One of his cows came rushing toward him in terror. The ground in her path suddenly opened up and unable to check her momentum, the poor beast went plummeting into a chasm. A swamp suddenly lift up and become dry land, while the side he stood on was rapidly falling and filling with water. And he says, all the while, ear-splitting explosions echoed around them, and the earth burst everywhere, throwing mud, sand, water, and coal a hundred feet toward the sky. Between the quake and the flood, not one of the community's houses was left standing so think about that devastation just i mean it just seems like it was going insane so we look here it says large areas sank into the earth new lakes were formed the course of the mississippi river was changed and forests were destroyed over an area of 150,000 acres houses gardens and fields were swallowed up one source notes but damages were low because the area was sparsely settled then. We talked about that, how the population at the turn of the century luckily had pretty much left. And there wasn't a whole lot left there. But this is the biggest earthquake ever recorded in the contiguous United States. And it occur- that the next one occurred on February 17th or February 7th, 1812. With a magnitude greater than eight on the Richter scale, we estimate the first earthquake preceded by three other major quakes. So you had two on December 16th, and then you had one on January 23rd, and then you had another one on February 7th. There are estimates that the earthquakes were felt strongly over 50,000 square miles and were moderately across nearly one million to a million and a half square miles, million square miles. From December 16th through March of 1812, there were over 2,000 aftershocks in central Midwest and between 6,000 and 10,000 earthquakes in the Bothiel of Missouri, where New Madrid is located near the junction of the Ohio and Mississippi rivers. 
The shockwaves were felt from the East Coast to the Rockies and from Southern Canada to Northern Mexico. In the known history of the world, no earthquakes have lasted so long or produced so much evidence of damage as the New Madrid earthquakes. Yeah, so they estimate that the February 7th one was 8.8 magnitude. Okay, so the area of strong shaking associated with these shocks was two to three times larger than that of the 1964 earthquake, uh, 1964 Alaska earthquake, and 10 times larger than the 1906 San Fran earthquake, which we we've heard was the big one, right? This is 10 times larger. It says there were missing people who were most likely swallowed up by the earth. Some earthquake fissures were as long as five miles. Think about that, five miles long. And then you had these little things, which are sand blows that would shoot out balls of sand, coal, whatever was in there. Okay, so you're seeing what happens here. And, and for those of you not watching, it's a diagram and you have the different layers. And as the earth shakes and the sand moves and the water gets pushed out, all this stuff is going to get pushed to the surface. And that's what they call sand blows. Um, the world's largest sand boil was created by the New Madrid earthquake. It was 1.4 miles long and 136 acres in extent. And it's located in Bothell, Missouri. Okay, so that's kind of what we're looking at here. This is what they're talking about, is this area um, of a sand boil, which means the sand was rising and shooting out of the ground. Now, what else did they have? They had seismic tar balls. Small pellets up to golf ball-sized uh, tar balls are found in sand boils and fissures. They are petroleum that have been solidified or petroliferous nodules. You have earthquake lights, which are lights that flashed up from the ground caused by quartz crystals being squeezed the phenomena is called uh semi-maluminescence the eight uh, the 1811 1812 earthquakes caused at least 221 landslides along the bluffs that divine the eastern boundary of the mississippi river so think about that the ground is just chaos at this time you had over 2,000 earthquakes there's, there's stuff shooting out of the ground. I mean, it sounds like hell on earth at this time. You got the Mississippi River running the wrong way, which is essentially like a tsunami if you think about it. Okay. There was a little town called Prairie, Arkansas, which sank into the ground slowly over the first day. The people soon found themselves knee deep in water and had weighed for several miles in the northeast direction to get up to high ground. The whole town simply disappeared with no trace of it today. And this is what we talk about with the mud floods. This is the type of liquefaction that could have taken place that swallowed buildings or buried a lot of buildings. Think about how many cities are on top of other cities. Well, why? Was it liquefaction? Was it just easier to build on top of it rather than destroy it? And there's so many questions that come out of this. But what you see are these, I mean, it's just, I mean, look at the flooding. Here, this is from New Madrid in 1810 or 1811. I mean, it's just, it's nuts. So when we get to this, what we're going to have to understand, there's four types of earthquakes. And I found this very interesting. Oh, hold on. Before we get back to that, think about liquefaction. What was one of the things growing up? And, and if you're my age or right around my age, maybe a little older, you, you were raised on this. There was always this fear of quicksand. 
getting swallowed by quicksands. Could that be related to liquefaction? I know that when we think about it, it was like a, 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 a sandy hole, essentially, a sandy pit on the ground that if you stepped in, you would just get slowly sucked into it and never be seen again. I remember Gilligan's Island had a great episode with the uh, with a sand pit. And uh, <laughs> yeah, it's just funny. But you think about that, and I've always wondered about that fascination with it, because I've never seen one in real life. Have you? I've never seen like quicksand. So it makes me just wonder, is this a, a, a distraction away from liquefaction? Another way to disguise it and say, ah, oh, these are just, this is just quicksand. I don't know what you're talking about, a mud flood. That never happened. So there's four types of earthquake. There's tectonic, volcanic, and collapse, okay, which is like a, a collapse of a mine or underground cavern. Then there's explosion earthquakes, which I didn't know about, which are human-induced, triggered by the detonation of chemicals or nuclear devices. Interesting. So they're saying that we, man, causes earthquakes, all you people out there that said we're crazy, that they could generate earthquakes, that they can manipulate the weather. They have, and they will again. On November 17th, 1775, the Cape Ann earthquake hit Boston hard, and it, it suffered extensive damage. Um, you know, they used to look at the chimneys because the chimneys were brick and they were pretty strong usually, but a hundred chimneys leveled 1200 destroyed in the area around Boston. Soil liquefaction produced many fissures. Some of them emitted fine sand and water and Cape Ann was only a magnitude six to six and a half earthquake, which was the largest to hit the Northeast. So think about this. We're talking 8.8. Think about the liquefaction. I mean, it, it was so powerful, it made the Mississippi change directions. So we think about soil liquefaction. That was a major factor in the New Madrid earthquake. And, and we showed how it occurs, right? It occurs by the shaking of the ground that dislodges water from the soil, causing it to behave like a dense fluid rather than a solid mass. It can result in landslides, lateral movement, and eruptions of liquid and solid matter, almost like mini volcanoes. When liquefaction occurs, the top layer is essentially floating on the layer of liquefied sand beneath it. It seemed as if the surface of the earth was afloat, one said. Any slope of the land that will cause flowing downhill, right? It's going to go the path of least resistance, causing landslides as riverbanks cave in. The shaking causes the water pressure to build up between the particles of sand. And when the pressure breaks through the silt, it throws up the sand and anything else that is buried underneath it. Okay. So you, you start looking at that and it's like, you can, what they said here, oh, where is it? Um, New Madrid saw an extinct Buffalo skull supposedly was ejected from the ground. Sand blows erupted from the circular openings that we showed you before. One of them 
was 16 and a half feet deep and 63 feet in diameter. I mean, that's massive, massive change of the landscape. It shot out pieces of coal up to 15 to 20 pounds. Guys, those are like mini cannonballs just being launched from the earth. I feel for the poor bastard that was on the receiving end of one of those. So one of the teams that was excavating there, they found potsherds, spear points, and uh, corn kernels and realized that many of the sand blows were more than 200 years old. Some had archaeological sites on top of them with 2,000-year-old artifacts. There's no way the New Madrid earthquakes was a one-time freak event. The Midwest had been slammed by violent quakes around uh, 1450 AD and uh, 92350 BC, and probably more often than that. But what I found interesting, what they say there, 2,000-year-old artifacts. There was stuff going on here, guys. Lots of stuff before white man ever got here. Or, you know, the Europeans, I should say. Not white man, because white men, you know, Vikings were here before. I mean, there's lots of people that were here before Columbus and his shit show. It says the river rose as high as 30 feet above its normal level. The Mississippi was running backwards. Michael Brom observed the river suddenly, yeah, rose up like a great loaf of bread to the height of many feet. With the water being uh, pushed by the current, the wall hit land. It had no place to go except the direction it had come, causing a huge wave like a tsunami in the ocean. The river rose as high as 30 feet above its normal level. I mean, think about that. 30 feet. Guys, that's like... I remember, what was that, um, the tsunami that we saw in Indonesia? And that, I mean, those waves were just massive also. But 30-foot wave. The river was covered with foam and drift timber and had risen considerably. Sections of the riverbed below the Mississippi rose so high that part of the river ran backward. Thousands of fissures ripped open fields and geysers burst from the earth, spewing sand mud and coal high into the air everywhere there was noise like thunder and the ground was shaking the tree down the air was thick something like smoke there was much lightning right think about all the electricity i don't know how long this went on for for we were all in great terror expecting death said Fermin laroche a mississippi boater we mean no effort this is what i find uh is a, is a really strange point. And <laughs> we made no effort to find out how many people were killed, although it told us that many were. We saw dead bodies of several and afterwards drowned persons we saw floating in the river. Earthquakes themselves do not kill. It's the tsunamis, you know, the landslides, fires, falling trees, falling structures, liquefaction, land fissures, stuff like that that kills. Natives witnessed Lake Orchard boil, bubble, and foam and roll as they had been in a large kettle over hot fire. So think about that. The lake was bubbling, boiling. Tecumseh went to visit the Osage in Missouri, who were terrified as the ground trembled beneath them. Now, what I found interesting about that is, if you remember the Philadelphia episode, they were on Osage Avenue. 
and here he went to visit the Osage tribe in Missouri. Just a little stupid sink, but it's crazy how these things tend to, you find little pieces. Brother, Tecumseh said, the great spirit is angry with our enemies. He speaks in thunder and the earth swallows up villages and drinks up the Mississippi. The great waters will cover their lowlands. Their corn cannot grow. And the great spirit will sweep those who escape the hills from the earth with his terrible breath. So he's saying the great spirit's going to take care of these white devils, essentially. 1812 would prove to be a calamitous year for all. Napoleon would meet disaster in Russia. In America, the catastrophe was for everybody. Whites, natives, and the British. It was just a shitty year in 1812 for everybody, it seemed. Too afraid to return to their homes, many of the New New Madrid stayed in their camps for over a year. The town of New Madrid, sunken, destroyed, and overflowed to three-fourths of its extent, with some of its inhabitants here and there visible among its ruins. You just had death and destruction. In Augusta, Georgia, 400 miles away, so severe a shock of an earthquake, we believe that there was never before experienced here, or as far as we know in the United States. In Detroit, 550 miles away, I felt an initial sensation. I thought something must be the matter with me. I felt an agitation that I could not account for. But I soon observed the walls of the house were in motion, north and south. In Annapolis, Maryland, 750 miles away, the state house vibrated for more than five minutes. In Louisiana, the shocks of the earthquake produced emotions and sensations resembling those of strong galvanic battery, galvanic battery. It made compasses stop working for over 10 minutes. So what they say here, it says, in all, the felt area of New New Madrid quakes amounted to a million and a half square miles, a staggering range. By comparison, the great 1906 San Francisco earthquake, which caused horrendous damage to a 10,000 square mile area, was barely felt as far away as Oregon, Nevada, and Southern California. Now, what's the difference for this? Well, what they go on to talk about is the soil, okay? And how the soil is different in in out West, you have a lot more rock, so it doesn't move as much. In the East, you have sand, which water comes up through, and it can make it a powerful, powerful quake. Now, you had the Native Americans. What did they think about this quake? They said the earthquakes were were because the great spirit was displeased with the whites for taking so much tribal land and for killing so many natives at the battle of Tippecanoe. Okay. Back in 1811 at the hands of one William Henry Harrison, the tribes themselves were being punished for abandoning the traditional ways. Some chiefs thought the great spirit is angry with the human race was about to destroy the world. The Shawnee prophet that caused the earthquake to destroy the whites. Okay, so they're saying Tecumseh created this. With the fulfillment of Tecumseh's prophecy, they had a clear explanation for the shocks, as well as an unmistakable direction. They began prepping for war, because that's what this was coming to. They were either going to have to defend themselves, or they were going to have to attack Harrison, because the U.S. government was going to come. 
So in December of 1811, January of 1812, Tecumseh was west of the Mississippi rallying tribes, and he finds out about the destruction of Prophetstown. He returns and is told how the Long Knives, that's they call the U.S. troops, torched the town, destroyed caches of food that had been hidden in the woods, and desecrated the burial ground by disinterring bodies. So they dug up the dead. That sounds real stand-up guys, these uh, U.S. troops. In February, he sends to Fort Malden for supplies, food, and ammo. The British, who were accused of arming the natives by the U.S., were wary of being drawn into the war with America, Okay, because they were dealing with a war on their own hands with Napoleon. So his request got him no shot and a small amount of powder. After Tippecanoe, the British king assured the president they did not want war. So the, the British are trying to keep things calm. They're like, listen, guys, we don't want to stir up the, the Americans. We don't want to fight the Americans. And you don't really want to either right now. Between 1803 and 1812, the British Navy, though, had seized as many as 1,000 uh, U.S. vessels and forced over 6,000 American uh, citizens to serve in the Royal Navy. So the U.S. was starting to get pissed off with Britain big time. The War of 1812 was as much against the natives as it was against the British, as I said before. So in December of 1812, Tecumseh agrees to meet with President Madison and Harrison together to establish the relations of peace and friendship. But by April, <laughs> Harrison says, ah, uh, nope, nope. He admitted he was wrong and the natives needed to be once and for all conquered. What other course is there left for us to pursue, but to make war a war of extirpation upon them? Now, do you know what extirpation is? To destroy totally, to kill off, to render absent or non-existent. Genocide, to get rid of them. Okay, this is William Henry Harrison, who became president of the United States. I mean, he didn't serve for long, thankfully. Died a month in because he was a scumbag, but hey, whatever. By June, the Winnebago, Potawatomi, and Kickapoo attacked settlers, killing 46 whites, and hundreds of settlers had abandoned their homesteads, fleeing nearby towns and forts. So this is where things start to go awry. They start attacking the white settlers, and now it's gonna, they're going to be dealt with. It's, it's going to lead to a battle. So the uh, Potawatomi chief said, the great spirit is angry and wants us to return to ourselves and live in peace. You see, many children have sold their lands. The great spirit did not give them land to sell. Perhaps the cause is the great spirit is angry. Okay. In a tribal council in Indiana in May, Tecumseh said, our hearts are good. They were never bad. Governor Harrison made war on our people in my absence. It was the will of God that he should do so. We hope that it please God that the white people may leave us in peace, and we will not disturb them. Neither have we done it, except when they have come to our village with the intention of destroying us. I will further state that had I been home, there would have been no bloodshed at the time. Speaking of Battle of Tippecanoe. 
June 17th, Tecumseh and 10 warriors went to Fort Wayne to meet with U.S. official Benjamin Stickney to convince him to allow uh, Tecumseh and his men to enter uh, the Canadian territory, which is denied due to the impending war between the U.S. and the British. He said, this is just going to inflame things. If they find out you're going to to Canada, it's going to cause war. So he said no. June 21st, Tecumseh leaves Fort Malden as U.S. forces are on the move. Little did he know, Congress declared war on June 18th. Britain was doing everything it could to avoid a second war due to economic depression and the battle with Napoleon. So in June, they lift the blockade on North America which opens everything up. They had a huge blockade on North America. June 13th, General William Hull and 2,000 troops arrive in Detroit and delivered a proclamation. Okay, so you want to hear this proclamation. It is quite interesting. He says, In the name of my country and by the authority of my government, I promise you protection to your persons, properties, and rights. Remain at your homes, pursue your peaceful avocations. If contrary to your own interest and the just expectation of my country, you should take part in approaching contest. You will be considered and treated as enemies and the horrors and calamities of war will stalk before you. If the barbarous and savage policy of Great Britain be pursued and the savages are let loose to murder our citizens and butcher our women and children, this war will be a war of extermination. No white man found fighting by the side of an Indian will be taken prisoner. Instant destruction will be his lot. I mean, it's just kind of crazy. You know, he's, he's telling these people and then so Tecumseh, what do they do? They were winning. Okay, and they forced Hall and his forces back to Detroit. And and in August, they demanded immediate surrender. So Hall surrendered the fort, the town, 2,000 men, weapons, and provisions, and the warship Adams. So the natives now had a warship in their arsenal. Harrison took over for Hall and destroyed 29 native villages. And in November burned prophet's town again so this is more like a symbolic ritual than anything else because they didn't really build up prophet's town tremendously again it was after they destroyed it they fleed for the most part but what's interesting is hall by surrendering that yeah he was deemed a traitor so on January 22nd, Tecumseh and British troops kill 300 U.S. troops and take 600 prisoners. The natives slaughtered 80 men left behind to await medical care. I mean, this is a vicious, vicious battle. May 1st, Tecumseh and his men decide to attack Fort Meigs with 1,600 cannonballs, but did little damage because of Starfort engineering of Captain Eliza Wood. So think about that. They they use Starforts, okay? To Battle that nasty cannon fire. (laughs) Oh, man. On May 5th, Harrison receives 1,400 militiamen from Kentucky, but they were forced to surrender after the battle with only 170 making it out. A slaughter ensued and was only brought to an end by Tecumseh himself. Miggs 
Fort Meigs would be the last success of the pan-tribal movement. Yeah, so when they took this, I mean, these natives went in there and they were scalping people, slaughtering, killing anything that moved in the village. I mean, it was brutal. So that gets us to October of 1813. And Tecumseh arrives in Chatham to find no preparations had been made to defend against Harrison's oncoming assault. During uh, the retreat on October 4th, Tecumseh is wounded as he is grazed by ball shot. And then there is a battle on October 5th. Okay, and what we have is as British soldiers fell into disarray. Oh, okay. Tecumseh tells uh, Proctor of the British, he says, Father, tell your men to be firm and all will be well. The attack on the British line came in mid-afternoon and it broke almost at once. As the British soldiers fell in disarray, Proctor galloped off, fleeing the battlefield and abandoning his troops to their own devices, an act for which he was later court-martialed. The Americans now swarmed forward to meet the Indians in the woods, and a fierce battle ensued. A group of horsemen, led by Colonel Richard Mentor Johnson, the guy I mentioned before that went on to be Van Buren's VP, he was the commander of Harrison's army, broke through. Johnson was wounded four times, but managed to remain in the saddle. Now this sounds kind of like a, one of those folklores, right? This guy's shot four times, stays in the saddle, keeps going. So with red and black war paint, Tecumseh's fierce countenance spurred the Indians who fought valiantly against the larger and better equipped American force. But as Tecumseh fearlessly charged forward to encourage his warriors, an American soldier raised his rifle and fired a shot into the Shawnee's chest. Mortally wounded, Tecumseh dropped to the ground. When he fell, wrote one of the American soldiers, his warriors gave the loudest yells I've ever heard from human beings, and that ended the fight. In the battle of chaos, in the chaos of battle, exactly who killed Tecumseh was uncertain. Four candidates emerged. Ultimately, Colonel Johnson himself was most widely credited. Much later, Johnson would use this to his advantage. When Tecumseh fell in battle, no other warrior was his equal to the task to supply the place of this great man. Tecumseh was not only was not bloodthirsty or brutal in his passions. His hatred to the whites governed all his actions, and this hostility arose entirely from his patriotism to preserve his nation and country from destruction. Can you blame him? Okay, so... He says, I have always, I have been always sorry that the war with the Indians engaged us, made it necessary to destroy Tecumseh, as he is the greatest man in either of the armies in which he was slain. So it, even, even his adversaries said, we're kind of saddened by his death, even though obviously they wanted him dead. And so that ends the piece on Tecumseh, who is a great warrior chief, who's all tied in with the New Madrid earthquake, right? This earthquake that's had the, I mean, it was just violent, throwing things around. Now we get to 1813, which is the continuation of the War of 1812. 
So the Riku Register set of 1813 said, This race of aboriginals have been treated with utmost gentleness and generosity. They have no possible cause of complaint, nor do they allege any against us. Which is comical. Because as you see, they broke treaties, they murdered villages, everything. The Red Stick, a faction uh, of militant Creek warriors, began attacking whites on U.S. roadways, terrorizing Alabama and Tennessee. Q. Andrew Jackson, who fought in the American Revolution against the British and was taken prisoner at the age of 14. So think about that. Andrew Jackson's a bad mofo. He was the major general in the Tennessee State Militia until the War of 1812. He was a backwoods lawyer briefly, and he served on the U.S. House of Reps and Congress, and then he became a judge on the Tennessee Supreme Court for six years. <laughs> so this guy, I mean, he's, he's done just about everything in politics, but he's known for his violent temper, and he was involved in several duels. Okay, I mean, that's crazy. Not one duel, multiple duels. 1806, he, he dueled over spite of his wife and was shot in the chest, survived, and killed the man. Jackson said the Creeks must be punished, our frontier protected, the fire of the militia is up, the burn for revenge, and now is the time to give the Creeks the fatal blow before they expect it. As far as I can learn from the Cherokees, the Creeks are making every preparation for war. The sooner we strike, the less we shall have to overcome, and a terrible vengeance will be afflicted at once upon the many tribes that have affected its other. Creeks would kill a few settlers. The U.S. government demanded retribution. Of course, right? So Big Warrior would go out and would they they would they would basically say, okay. Here, here's your options, big warrior. Either you take care of these men or we're going to take care of these men and some. So what does he do? Big warrior went out and he would kill the men. But by doing so, he created a division within his own tribe. Okay, the upper creek were red sticks. The lower creek were the big warrior uh, loyal. So the hostile party is numerous. And if assistance is not given to big warrior and his party by the U.S. and it's apprehensive that they will be conquered uh, from the superior force of the rebels. The Red Six asked the Spanish for backing and supplies and arms and got powder and shot. So in August, you have one of uh, Jackson's men write to him uh, to order a campaign to be carried on against a portion of the Creek Indians to punish them for their hostility. So on August 30th of 1813, a thousand Creek warriors attack Fort Mims near Mobile, uh, Mobile, Alabama, massacred at least 200. uh, Yeah, a thousand Creek warriors attack Fort Mims, massacred 250 Indians, Negroes, whites, men, women, and children. All were scalped. Women were butchered in a manner which neither decency nor language will permit me to describe. The main building was burned to ashes, which were filled with bones. The plains in the woods around were covered with dead bodies. The soldiers and officers called on divine providence to revenge the death of our murdered friends. General Weatherford said, my warriors were like famished wolves. 
the first taste of blood made their appetites insatiable. I mean, this is just savage behavior, guys. Savage. November 3rd, Jackson orders General John Coffey and 900 horse troops to attack Tawasatchee. Every warrior and just about every woman and child were killed, around 200, estimated. Jackson said it was done in elegant style. Jackson then took 2,000 men north to Talladega, killing 300 while only losing 17 men. That's That's a massacre, guys. That's what a massacre is. Killing every man, woman, and child. Killing 300 more in another village. November 18th, General John Cook's army invaded a Creek village that had already surrendered to Jackson's killing 60 and taking 250 prisoners while suffering no casualties. The people already surrendered. He went in and massacred them. November 28th, General John Floyd's thousand-man militia attacked two villages, killing 200 Creeks while only losing 11. In about one month, the Creeks lost about 20 percent of their warriors and it kind of comes to a head here in you know you have two real battles to you know two major battles that i'm going to look at still and we have which is the battle of horseshoe bend and the battle of new orleans okay so we look march 26 1814 andrew jackson and a contingent of 3300 regulars militiamen cherokees and lower creek were just Outside Horseshoe Bend, the Red Sticks, under direction of Chief Menowa, had fortified their village, uh, Tihopika, located in the peninsula created on the bend. An impressed Jackson later described the fortification favorably. It is impossible to conceive a situation more eligible for defense than the one they had chosen, and the skill which they manifested in their breastwork is really astonishing. So the natives weren't just putting up these cockamamie tents and shit. They had fortified defenses. In the morning, Johnson launched a two-pronged attack on Teopica. Knowing that he couldn't assault the breastwork head-on, he divided his force, sending a second-in-command, General John Coffey, and 1,300 of his militiamen, uh, the Lower Creeks and Cherokee, on a wide-flanking maneuver that would cross Tallapoosa and surround the Red Sticks. Jackson commenced with an artillery barrage around 10.30 while Coffey's men positioned themselves to get the escaping, fleeing men. The Battle of Horseshoe Bend was a disaster for the Red Sticks, with more than 18, or 800 of their 1,000 warriors killed in the fray. 80% of their men done. Even more significant, the Upper Creek Nation had lost its last substantial fighting force. Chief Menowa was wounded several times during the battle, but miraculously escaped after playing dead until nightfall, climbing in a canoe and floating away on the Talapusa. Following the defeat at Horseshoe Bend, the remaining warriors signed the Treaty of Fort Jackson on August 9th, 1814. Okay, so that ended the hostilities and forced the Upper Creeks to cede over 20 million acres to the United States, virtually half of what is Alabama today. Okay. It made no distinction between hostile and friendly creeks. Over the next 15 years, Alabama's population exploded, growing from a sparsely populated wilderness with under 10,000 inhabitants in 1810 to one of the South's most vital 
economic engines by 1830 with a population over 300,000 and the best college football program known to man, Roll Tide. The Creek would never be able to regain their tribal autonomy, and in 1830, with the signing of the Indian Removal Act by President Andrew Jackson, the remaining Creeks were forced onto reservations in Oklahoma on the Trail of Tears. And if you haven't looked into the Trail of Tears, it's disgusting. They basically led a death march of these natives to their reservation, their cage that they were going to be put in. And it's, it's really gross. But what's even more gross is, okay, so this is President Jackson talking after the slaughter at Horseshoe Bend. You have destroyed a confederacy of the enemy, ferocious by nature and grown insolent with impunity, with which they had so long committed their depredations. Barbarians, they were ignorant of the influence of civilization and of government over the human powers. Stupid mortals. So it must be ever, uh, so it must ever be when a presumption and ignorance contend against bravery and prudence. The fiends of the Talapusa will no longer murder our women and children or disturb our quiet borders. They have disappeared from the face of the earth. How lamentable is it that the path of peace should lead through blood and over carcasses of the slain, but is in the dispensations of that providence which inflicts partial evil to produce general good. Our enemy are not sufficiently humbled since they do not sue for peace. A collection of their forces again await our approach and remain to be dispersed. Buried in ignorance and seduced by their prophets, they have the weakness to believe they shall still be able to make a stand against our arms. We must undeceive them. They must be made to atone for their obstinacy and their crimes by still farther suffering. Okay, he doesn't, it's not enough. Not only do they want these people done with, they want them to suffer. I mean, it's just disgusting. So Jackson being Jackson decides, okay, well, I'm already down here. Let's get rid of the Spanish, excuse me, from Florida and the British from New Orleans. And this was the last step in claiming the river valleys, okay? Controlling the waterways and pushing the Spanish and the British out of the United States. So aside from Jackson really defeating the Creeks, the War of 1812 was not going good for the U.S. in 1814. Tens of thousands of veterans uh, from the Napoleonic Wars were sent over to the U.S. by the Brits. Okay, the British invaded Maine and D.C. And they burnt the White House, the Capitol, and other government buildings. And then, um, then they sent some, some of their troops to Pensacola. Um, and then the last of their troops they sent to New Orleans. The British offered to negotiate peace, and Madison accepted. But then the British ships attacked Baltimore, and they were held off and retreated. And that's where... Um, Another star fort was put into play, Fort McHenry, and also where this rumor of or the Star Spangled Banner was created was during that Battle of Baltimore there. So the next battle, or the next month in the Battle of Lake Champlain, U.S. warships defeated the British and turned the tide. November 7th, Jackson marched on Pensacola and took it with hardly a fight. Spanish governor surrendered, 
and the British destroyed their forts in Florida and retreated. So Jackson went to New Orleans, and around December 1st, um, the battles began to ensue around December thir- uh, 14th through the year end. So in the battle, the British lost 430 of 6,000 men. Jackson lost 435 of 5,000 men. In the Battle of New Orleans on January 8th, 1815. Now, what's crazy is the battle really shouldn't have taken place because the Treaty of Ghent was signed two weeks earlier and the British had already abandoned Maine, New York, and all their native allies. So, uh, the, this battle in New Orleans, you have the men on both sides are freezing. It's cold. It's wet. They're hungry. They're exhausted. You have eight to 9,000 British against about 4,000 um, American troops. And they're not even troops. It's, it's like a ragtag uh, collection of men. So the British officers sent wave after wave of their, their uh, soldiers. Okay. And only to be mowed down wave after wave by Jackson's troops. And in less than two hours, the battle for New Orleans was over. And this quote just, I could have walked on dead bodies of the British for a quarter of a mile without stepping on the ground. The British lost 2,000 men, uh, 300 killed, 1,200 wounded, 500 captured. British high command was decimated. Americans suffered just 13 casualties, less than 40 wounded, and 20 missing. So this is kind of the death blow to the British here. So the Treaty of Ghent, it was a peace treaty that was signed at the end of the War War of 1812 between the U.S. and the British. And it took an effect in uh, February of 1815. So, but both sides initially signed it in 1814. Um. Over in the Netherlands. So the treaty restored relations between the two parties to status quo antebellum by restoring the pre-war borders of June 1812. So it was giving the U.S. just back. Basically, Britain lost all their control there, and that was it. The treaty was approved by the British Parliament and signed into law by Prince Regent, the future King George IV, on December 30th, 1814. It took a month for news of the treaty to reach the United States, during which the American forces under Andrew Jackson, like we just said, had the Battle of New Orleans on January 8th. The treaty did not take effect until um, uh, the U.S. Senate ratified it unanimously on February 16th, 1815. So even when the Battle of New Orleans took place, the U.S. hadn't ratified it yet. U.S. President James Madison signed the treaty and exchanged the final ratified copies with the British ambassador on February 17th, 1815. That's when the British, uh, any attempts to land claims ended. Same with the Spanish. They were driven out of Florida and the natives were ruthlessly crushed. And that is, yeah, see, that's the end essentially of the war of the British presence and of, of the natives, right. As we'll see for the next 50 years or so, they're just continuously driven West onto reservations and treated poorly at best, you know, given alcohol, 
not getting now give them casinos and shit it's like come on guys this is such a joke but after the treaty against was signed okay congress also passed on uh what is it february 17th of 1815 they passed the new madrid relief act now it was the first federal disaster recovery act in u.s history but the relief act in itself was a huge huge disaster okay needless to say after all of it basically what happened is is they created this these certificates for land that you could come grab well unfortunately the the locals were notified after the people of st louis and other places so those people came swarming in scooped up the land and only 20 were given to the current landowners so it's like all this 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 whole new um set of people coming in and basically making a bogus claim on land and it, it became known as the new madrid claim and that was uh it was syn- synonymous with fraud right if you had a new madrid claim it means you gathered you gained it fraudulently so to try and fix this new madrid relief act congress passed three more pieces of leg- legislation to try and straighten out the mess needless to say they never got it fixed so what you'll you'll you know it just guys what and what we see following right and what i'm showing here is the missouri compromise where more land was ceded and then you just look and and the natives were just pushed further and further west until eventually there was no further to push them i mean you look at all this territory here you know you look from from mississippi to alabama the chickasaw Choctaw or Choctaw, the Creek, Seminole, they all had all this land and now they're pushed over to a little piece of Oklahoma, Northern Texas, that area. And it's just, it's, you know, I mean, I get it. You have the people that are going to defend the red, white, and blue, no matter what. And they're going to say that these savages were attacking, you know, villages and settlers and all that. Well, yeah. They were, but whose land was this to begin with? It was taken illegally. And that's what we, you know, when we look at these things and the reason why I really, I'm fascinated, first of all, by the comet, right? And the electricity that, that must've generated, we're going to, I'm going to do some more um, work on this and, and we're going to take a look at some liquefaction and things like that. And you know, what kind of electricity this comet might have produced that might have spurred on this earthquake. But what we see again and again and again is the American government committing atrocities against its people and other people, domestic and abroad, right? If you get in the way of the United States government and what they're trying to do, they will destroy you. They don't care. We saw it here. In the War of 1812, which was basically the war to get rid of the natives. Let's see if we can get them out west, get them onto reservations, castrate them. Don't let them know who they truly were. And we saw it when they tried to confiscate guns at Wounded Knee, and there was a massacre there. We saw it in Tulsa in 1921 at Black Wall Street, and we saw it in Philadelphia in 1985. So if you don't think it's going to go on, 
and it can't go on today, guys. They are historically, they have a pattern of doing this, right? And for those of you that, that say, oh, they couldn't do it today. Well, guess what? What are they, what are they legislating right now? Gun laws, right? And they think they're going to solve the gun problem through legislation. They're not. It's not something that can be legislated. There are more problems than that, but they're going to solve it. They're going to find a way to solve this problem through legislation. There's two things you're going to realize. Government solves nothing through legislation and government is the biggest. The United States government is the biggest terrorist on the face of the earth, period. Whether it's for the United States or at the behest of someone else, we are used as the enforcer. And if you get in the way, you will be dealt with. And that's what we see here again. So another massacre, more needless death, unnecessary death, senseless death. But what we can learn from this is that you have to know your history because it's going to repeat itself otherwise. History is a wave, guys. It comes, ebbs and flows. You're going to see patterns that repeat themselves throughout time. And this whole colonization and genocide of native peoples is one that has truly changed the landscape of the world that we occupy today. And, you know, we've kind of gone down this road showing the American government and all of their misdeeds against humanity, specifically their own citizens. And and what I want to take a look at next time is how that same government decided it was a good idea to bring in thousands of Nazis to work for us, to defend America. I mean, it's just, it's mind-boggling, guys. Operation Paperclip. Take a look. Because this is, this operation is the predecessor to what is going on today. A lot, the majority of the chaos that is going on right now can be traced back its roots to Operation Paperclip because this country drastically changed post-World War II when these Nazi scientists, engineers, people were brought into the government and brought into high positions, guys. High positions in NASA, Werner von Braun. High positions in science. You're going to see it all over. And it's going to bring in the era of pharmaceuticals. It's going to bring in the era of mind control. It's going to bring in the era of fluoride, of trying to subdue your population. And it's just another instance of the United States government acting like assholes. I mean, to just put it out there, I mean, there's no other way to say it. In order to prevent Russia from getting all these guys, we're going to take them in. They're, all that bad stuff they did for the Nazis, we're going to forget it because they're going to do good stuff for us. Yeah, they're doing the same shit they were doing for the Nazis for the Americans. All right, guys, this was a long one, but I really feel like it tied up some loose strings. And you get to see that This period in the 1800s, there's a lot of change going on, a lot of chaos going on, a lot of disasters, natural and wars. And we're going to see this over and over as we dig deep through the 1800s. And this is all part of the reset. And we're going to keep digging into it. 
So guys, I appreciate you so much. All of you that share, that like, that leave reviews. I can't thank you all enough. If anyone wants to join the Patreon, patreon.com slash the Great Deception Podcast. We have a $3 tier, a $5 tier, $8 tier. $3 and $5 tier will get you um, all the video Monday Night Master Debaters going forward. I'm going to start putting some of the older ones up there too. Um, and you will get shows that are behind a paywall when I go on someone else's show as a guest. And I have a great two-part series on Starforks that is going to be on the Patreon. If not this week, it'll be on next week for patrons only. I, I, I'm sorry, guys, for the, the regular listeners, but um, I promised uh, the guys that I did the show with that since they have it behind a paywall, I would also keep it behind a paywall um, for now. It eventually it'll come public, but two great episodes, a new look at Starforts. Um, I did it with Brandon Thomas from Expanding Realities and uh, Dave Zed from Generation Z and, and the Kraken. And man, their perspective on this opened up a couple different avenues. And Dave just is a next level mind. So is Brandon. I mean, these guys are really, really smart guys that just brought some real perspective to this and, and brought some ideas that I had never thought about before. So I'm really interested to hear what you guys think about it. But that will be on Patreon only, unfortunately. Um, and then we have the merch guys. Go get your Great Deception podcast gear. Um, honestly, I love I love the T-shirt. Uh, I'm not going to lie. I've had an issue with the sweatshirt so far. I ordered um, one of the hoodies and the, the logo is falling off. So I'm working with them to try and get that resolved. And so if any of you have an issue like that, where you ordered one of the, uh, the shirts or the uh, hoodies or any of the products and it's defective and these people will not uh, work with you, let me know and I will do my best to take care of it. I will make it right for you. With that said, guys, go check out the Instagram, Great Deception Podcast. Um, like, share, review this. Do me a favor. Keep it. Keep the show moving. Keep the show growing. Anyone that wants to contribute, you can look down in the show notes. There's plenty of places or ways for you to contribute. Want to leave an email? I've had a couple people reach out to me recently, um, and and uh, also some local folks. Guys, if you're local in the area, uh, I'm in Western Mass. So if you're in New England anywhere, or you know even New York State, let me know. Um, I would like to eventually you know, set something up and have a little, uh, get together with some people just to get to meet some, uh, of the listeners and, uh, anybody that's interested. So we could, uh, get that going. So shoot me an email. Let me know. I'm always down to meet people in the area. Um, and everything like that. It's, it's a crazy time. Things are not going to get any less crazy in the near future, especially with a midterm election coming up. So you guys have to do your work. Get yourself ready. Get your mind ready. Get your body ready. Get your soul ready. Because it's not going to be easy. We are, we are in an uphill battle right now because the dark forces at B are not letting up. And they are going to keep stepping on our, the backs of our necks until we fight back. And we're getting to that point where they're starting to break. And they're going to keep pushing and keep pushing. So what do we have to do? We have to stay strong. 
and question everything. Cruelty and injustice, intolerance and oppression, and where once you had the freedom to object, to think and speak as you saw fit, you now have sensors and systems of surveillance coercing your conformity and subverting your submission. We need cameras. How did this happen? Who's to blame? Well, certainly there are those who are more responsible than others, and they will be held accountable. But again, truth be told, if you're looking for the guilty, you need only look into a mirror. I know why you did it. I know you were afraid. Who wouldn't be? War, terror, disease. There were a myriad of problems which conspired to corrupt your reason and rob you of your common sense. Fear got the best of you, and in your panic you turned to the now High Chancellor Adam Sutler. He promised you order, he promised you peace, and all he demanded in return was your silent, obedient consent.